DiscerningHearts.com presents The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. Dr. Doran is a board-certified neurosurgeon with over 25 years of experience and is also an ordained permanent deacon and serves as the bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. He is the author of To Die Well, a Catholic neurosurgeon's guide to the end of life, the book on which this series is based. His writings in bioethics, neurosurgery, and gene therapy for brain disorders have been widely published in national media outlets, academic journals, and neurosurgery textbooks. He is also the co-founder of Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon, with Dr. Stephen Doran. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Can you talk to us a bit about what is death? What is it, its nature, as it were? On the one level, it's, you know, simply the cessation of bodily function. I mean, that's maybe the sterile clinical definition of death. And from a practical perspective, it's when your heart stops beating and you stop breathing and your brain stops working and you're dead. That's the, you know, clinical definition of death. You know, we believe as Catholics that we're an integrated body and soul. And that's how we are created. Uh, When we come into existence, we have this integrated body and soul. And so death is more than just the cessation of bodily function. Uh, Death is the separation of the soul from the body, which is this very unnatural state. You know, that's not how we were created. And that's why why death is so jarring, how it enters in and, and changes things so much is even more than bodily cessation functioning. It is the separation of the soul from the body, and that's not how we were created. So we, there's this longing then for, for the, the union of the body and soul at some point, and which we look forward to, you know, in the resurrection of the dead. So that's what death is on a clinical level, but more importantly, on a, on a spiritual level. Yeah, I think it's a, a place we just don't want to visit. Because we just don't understand it, really. I mean, even in today's world, it's gotten more and more complicated, where you have to have those who will come in and determine, oftentimes, that death has actually occurred. Or you have to decide whether to save a life or to prolong a death. And understanding that conundrum for so many people, that's where you come in and often cases because you have to be someone who is not offering just a clinical determination about somebody's bodily status, but helping to address the questions of for a family or for an individual when that it's time to, can I say this correctly by saying letting go or knowing what to do? Yeah, I, I think that there is a need mentally, spiritually, emotionally when someone is in the process of dying, of allowing yourself to emotionally and spiritually give over your will to God. Letting go is a nice way to say that, a good way to say that. But that letting go, that letting over is an act of the will that says, I conform my own will to your will, God. And in the process of seeing my loved one die, or in the process of dying, I accept your will. 
I don't understand it, or maybe I think I understand it, but it, it's a recognition of conforming my will to God's. You've had to deal with so many different types of letting go for people, whether it's to withhold nutrition, if that is something that a family might want and it may or may not be appropriate, palliative care, hospice care. It, you address it, and again, in conversations, we're going to talk more and more about that. But someone who for so many years was the clinician as the neurosurgeon, how did that bridge form where you became the deacon? That who in itself, I mean, diacony is service. That is that one who helps cross the bridge. Yeah. I mean, the, the call to the diaconate was how, gosh, you know, it's, I, I wish I had a more succinct vocation story. You know, I, I don't. And maybe I better get a thumbnail elevator talk sometime, but it, I, I can't reduce it to like the call came from this or a call came from that. It was something that came out hopefully from a, a posture of prayer and dependency, um, discernment with, with my wife. And that wasn't necessarily being driven by my vocation as physician, quite frankly. If anything, my vocation as physician would probably be a deterrent to being a deacon, not because of any sort of conflict between the two, but just from a practical perspective of time and um, the time for formation and then afterwards what the expectations were. So in some ways, the two were at odds with each other on a, on a practical level. And so I think that's what made that process of discerning the diaconate. It was challenging at times. Even before I became a deacon, I would I would pray with patients. We're blessed to live in a, I think, in a very Catholic community, and people are open and will say things to kind of give you a hint, you know, that they're looking for prayer, open to prayer, you know. And so praying with patients was something that uh, was part of my uh, practice even before the diaconate. I would say the diaconate has hopefully deepened and enriched my uh, desire to incorporate God more fully into my practice as a, as a surgeon, knowing that, of course, that I can't impose or proselytize or anything like that on my patients, but especially, you know, in patients suffering uh, serious pain or experiencing serious illness, or is that, what's that saying? There's, there's no atheists in foxholes, right? I mean, when people are under times of extreme duress, there's an openness there. And again, not, not wanting to take advantage and, and impose, but yet seeing that the openness that comes with serious illness or death or pain, being able to bring Christ into that in a way that hopefully the, the graces of ordination allow me to do so even at a, at a deeper level. Well, you're called to very often, aren't you, to determine whether or not someone has a chance to be able to continue with their lives given their particular situation. Well, no, that's true. I, th I think a very common experience that I have is, especially in patients who are older, well, there's kind of two, there's two ends of that. On the younger end is where you have patients who maybe experience sudden trauma, auto accident, uh, something like that. Maybe even more commonly is the other end of the spectrum, an older patient who now suffers some serious event, a stroke, a hemorrhage, or something like that in their brain. And, and so now the the role of the physician, first and foremost, is to give the patient's family or other decision makers accurate information 
try not to insert your own particular biases into this in this situation so that they understand what's going on and i think that that's that my role as a physician first and foremost is to provide information hopefully in a way that can be received and understood so that those who are in that situation of making decisions for a loved one um, have what they need to make decisions and so that's my my first duty but hopefully in in a way that maybe for the patient's family to sense or see or see or experience something beyond just the the sterile list of here's what the problem is and here's what the prognosis is and you decide we'll come back in a couple of minutes uh, trying to hopefully guide them in a way that's more loving and to address hopefully the emotional and spiritual realities that come along with the dying process there are other situations where the person himself can participate in that process someone say who has a brain tumor who's death is experienced over a more extended period of time. And so having those same types of conversations with the patient themselves are, are super important. There are so many people out there that practice medicine, in particular those who are the physicians. Again, I want to be very reverent about this because everybody's where people are at in their, their state of life may look at things maybe a little differently. But if I could say that there are those doctors who consider themselves to be Catholic, and then there are maybe the paradigm is, I am a Catholic doctor. There's just a little bit of a nuance there, which comes first. I think that's what we're all called to do in our vocations is not to compartmentalize our faith, which isn't always easy to do, right? I mean, it's I would be arrogant of me to, to claim that I've perfectly integrated my faith life with my professional life or even my family life. But yeah, you're right, Chris. I mean, we are we are called not to be a doctor who happens to be Catholic. We are called to be a Catholic doctor, someone who integrates the reality of our faith into how we see the world. And for those who at, at the beginnings of life, for so many, there those doctors who are obstetricians or those who deal with children and maybe even the internists who will deal during the course of life with patients, it's clear for many of them, I think I can say, to be that Catholic doctor and to be able to practice that. But in the particular area that you have dove into, and it's more from my observation, if you don't mind me saying this, Steve, that it's more difficult when it comes in this area of dealing with death, with the last thing. This is it for the life of this patient. And it can, I would imagine, maybe not be as clear in your professional practice colleagues. I'm not trying to say just yours, but in other doctors in this field, to be able to bring the faith element into the decision-making, the discernment. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah, I, I, I think that's fair to say because I think if to your example, the other end of the spectrum of someone being pregnant and having new life and birth is anticipated. There's this joy and this is anticipation. There's this wonder that comes with that. So whereas on the other end of the spectrum, death, it calls to question the whole idea of suffering, you know, and brings up the big question of why would an all good God allow people to suffer? You know, that that question that is plagues us and that we have to sit with and pray with and that doesn't have a clear-cut answer. So, so bringing got into a situation that involves suffering is more challenging to receive and more challenging to accompany with someone than, say, 
you know, God's blessed us with this joyous event of a child. You know, now, now we face with this reality, like I'm suffering or I'm going to die or my loved one's suffering, they're going to die. Where's God in all this? And it does present a particular challenge. You're right. Was that an easy thing for you, given your family background, your relationship, even in your marriage and everything like that when you first started? I, I don't want to set myself up as someone who's just always been mindful of this, right? I mean, especially early on in training, you're just overwhelmed with everything that's going on and you're just keeping your head down and and going on from one fire to the next fire to put it out. I, I think it, it took time and uh, my own personal spiritual growth to be able to say, okay, you know, how is God present in, in me in all ways? And so I think it's a work in progress, by no means perfected it, and, and hopefully will continue to, to grow in that area. So, but yes, I mean, my faith has been absolutely paramount in my family growing up, my uh, wife, uh, her family, uh, the formation and the diaconate, all those things kind of woven together to hopefully allow me to accompany patients in a deeper way that hopefully gets even deeper as as my own journey continues. Well, the reason I'm probing that is just that it can be, again, very much a challenge given the church's stance on, for example, I'll just, we'll discuss this more fully in future conversations, but in the area of brain death, when have they passed? When is it proper to say that this is a time where you could take a transplant, for example, of someone. What the church may teach is different in some cases than what would be practiced in the secular realm. Not to make that a negative, but they may not have that type of incorporation of formation that the church would hope in people's looking at that, that issue more sensitively. Well, you're right, Chris, and and that becomes even more challenging as technology and medicine continues to advance. Thanks be to God for that. But it but it also raises new challenges. What was impossible turned into possible, turned into probable, turned into standard. And along the way, that presents new challenges. And in the area of brain death is a, a great example of that. It was you know, a hundred years ago, impossible to keep someone alive in, in certain situations. And now it's not only possible, it's standard. And so as technology pro- progresses and our understanding of the physiology behind our function in our body, it, it makes those decisions even more difficult. And so it's important not to become arbitrary. It's important to have some grounded principles by which we make those decisions that are grounded in both science, but also in ethical decision-making, uh, which is then undergirded by our faith, by the church. And so, so yeah, at the end of the live brain death is a particular example where it, that issue has just become even more and more complicated and challenging as technology has evolved. We'll return to the final journey with Dr. Stephen Doran in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app where you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming. Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John S. of Deacon James Keating, Father Donald Haggerty, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more. They're all available on the free Discerning Hearts app. Over 3,000 spiritual formation programs and prayers, all available to you with no hidden fees or subscriptions. 
Discerning Hearts Catholic Podcast, dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. An easy way to help Discerning Hearts is to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Our Instagram and Facebook pages are vibrant spaces where you can engage with daily inspirational quotes from the saints, streaming DH broadcast encounters, and updates about our latest offerings. On our YouTube channel, you'll find a treasure trove of video podcasts, interviews, guided meditations and prayers, and reflections from renowned spiritual leaders. These resources are carefully curated to provide guidance, wisdom, and insights that can help you discern life's challenges with a sense of purpose and peace. By subscribing, following, and engaging with Discerning Hearts on these platforms, you're not only enriching your own spiritual journey, but also helping to spread awareness of our mission. Every like, share, and comment helps us reach more people who are seeking meaningful growth and connection. So, please take a moment to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, and then share with a friend. Join the Discerning Hearts community and embark on a transformative spiritual journey alongside fellow seekers. Your engagement not only benefits you, but also contributes to the growth and impact of Discerning Hearts. We now return to The Final Journey with Dr. Stephen Doran. I think your book, To Die Well, is so important because you can see the importance of beginning the conversations, at least, in a larger way. When we talk about, for example, the beginnings of life, once technology, as you said, began to demonstrate, well, when is a fetus viable? When does a heartbeat start? Technology has shown us now so clearly, and now you can see the whole country is engaged in these conversations about the beginnings of life and what we should do about that. And that's a good thing because that was an area of mystery. And I think even when dealing with the area of death, that's where you begin to kind of pull back that veil. I've, I've said that before, but technology has shown us what we may not have understood fully even five years ago about death and this, the nature and the, what's going on with the human soul. Oh, that's absolutely true. And in, in particularly the area of when is someone dead, the, the range of perspective on that between both secular and people of faith, how they look at that, can end up on the same side for very different reasons or be opposed to each other for the same reason. And and so there's a lot to to be aware of, a lot to work through. And it seems like each day there's a uh, an ongoing uh, challenge towards that. And again, a lot being driven by technology, but also being challenged by cultural norms. The reality of assisted suicide or euthanasia becoming normative in some countries, you, you know, our, our neighbors to the north in Canada, for example, where this seems so, you know, or different states in the United States where that's just become kind of part of what's considered the normal course of medicine. So yeah, we're, we're, we're challenged by technology, but we're also very challenged by cultural norms as they change. 
Exactly. And you mentioned a euthanasia, uh, allowing assisted suicide, those kinds of things, especially for the doctor, whether they're going to participate in that, if they can ethically, morally assist someone in that, how do they determine? Also the family, but also faith leaders, pastors, chaplains. Oftentimes we don't have the practice of entering into that kind of discernment or decision-making because each individual is so particular and their stories are so particular that just having a textbook that says this is how you have to do it or this is what you should do or even a law that's written in a constitution or in somewhere, that it doesn't take in the particularity of that individual. Would you think that's true? No, it's, it's very true in, in that an individual person's experience and their circumstances are so important in the decision-making process. And now the cynical person may say, well, that's just situational ethics, you know, but that's not true at all. Because if we look at kind of the, what are the undergirding ethical moral principles that allow us to walk our way through circumstances that may end up with a totally different decision in one case versus another, helps us to realize that these decisions aren't arbitrary if they're grounded in very fundamental moral ethical practices. Because if they're not, if they're not grounded in established moral principles, that can become arbitrary. And it and it and it can appear, they're not appear, but it does become, oh, well, you just do what you want willy-nilly because you're doing you end up with you end up at different endpoint with different patience. And so why is that? Well, well, unless you're grounded in ethical, moral thinking, it, it can become arbitrary. And there is an element of a grace that can happen in certain situations that seems so textbook, right? Something occurs that is so grace-filled that some type of miracle may happen. And I'm not talking about an extraordinary miracle, though praise God when those things do happen, but even the the miracle of a prolonged life that will have its effects on families, situations. I mean, we just never know what God's doing in that. And then being open to that is very important, especially for not just the family, but I would think for the witness of the doctor's own life. It can be transformative oftentimes, couldn't it? Yeah, I, I think that even the most cynical, non-faithful person who witnesses someone who dies well and dying well in, in the in the context that we've been talking about cannot help but be inspired by that, right? And see like, oh, it can move them to contemplate their own mortality, their own life, where we hope it does anyway, you know? And so how we die can and ought to be a witness to to the larger community and hopefully move people in some way that they're open to their own limitations, their own mortality, and as such, open to the idea of the presence and reality of God. Yeah, to, to bring it back to faith, it, you can't help but look at the crucifix and see how our Lord, even in the most excruciating circumstances, entered into his own death and was bringing forth the Father's will, that I would imagine, especially for your particular practice in your own life, has been quite a signpost, hasn't it? 
It has. It has. And absent a suffering Savior, indeed, death becomes pretty much meaningless. You know, it's just the end of everything and something to be avoided and something to be ignored. But the presence of a suffering Savior changes everything. Changes everything. Well, as a deacon, you baptize babies. You baptize them into the death of Christ. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Oftentimes when I do a baptism, I'll use the reading from Romans that says, you know, just like we were baptized into his death, we're also baptized into his resurrection. And you kind of get this quizzical look like, what are you talking about death for? This is baptism. Come on, dude. You know, and so, but yeah, there's beautiful spiritual reality of what baptism means you know, both at the beginning and end of our life and our journey as Christians. That's the reason to die well, because it's recalling that you've died into the death of Christ, but here's the glory. He was raised, and that's what we're aiming for. And I guess in closing this particular part of our conversation, can you speak to that clinician that, whether it's a one of those nurse practitioners that work so hard and they're walking with people or the the doctor or those who are in that that space that you have been dwelling in for so many years of your life? What would be the words of encouragement from you? Well, I would just encourage people to, first of all, be open, open in their own life, especially open in their own journey of the the presence of God, the possibility of Jesus in their life. And then what that does is open to you. So what I'm saying is be open to love, right? Be open to love. Be open to love from God. Be open to love from your spouse, your children, a friend, whatever. And so being open to love then opens up so many possibilities. The the, the more you love, the more you love. And so approaching your vocation care if you're a neurosurgeon or working on assembly line, doesn't matter, that we approach our vocation out of love. And once you do that, once you open up your heart to love, it opens up your mind, it opens up possibilities. So yeah, I mean, in the end, what, what matters? What matters? Love, that's what matters. Mm, amen to that. Dr. Stephen Doran, thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Chris. You've been listening to The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission which is to offer authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for The Final Journey, Insights from a Catholic Deacon and Neurosurgeon with Dr. Stephen Doran.